Mūtasā bhagavātu arahatu asamā sambuddhasā Mūtasā bhagavātu arahatu asamā sambuddhasā Mūtasā bhagavātu arahatu asamā sambuddhasā Uddhāng dhammāng sāngkāng namasāmi So New Year's Eve, it's nice to see everyone gathering here, it's a sense of an occasion. Obviously a phrase like New Year's Eve gives you a feeling of a door from the old to the new, chances to stop, recollect, so it's not just time sliding along, sliding from one moment to the next, but some sense of a conscious pause and recollection, you know. What's the harvest of the year? What do we take? What do we skim off and leave behind? All of it. <laughs> Some of it. What do we take with us? Yeah. It's always good to, to have such occasions. In the, generally in the Buddhist culture, this is a fortnightly occasion. Every, every fortnight, pause, stop, yeah. It's really we're not going anywhere and forward, we're just going round and round. And we turn of the circle, we stop. Where's it going? Yeah. So really we're, you know, this circularity of time, when you contemplate that, how much of our life is just morning, afternoon, evening, night. Sleep, getting up, uh, getting it ready, working through the day, putting it away, going to bed again, sleep. You know, it's going like that, isn't it? Yeah. Day after day, yeah. just going round in that circle. Yeah, and it seems like it's going forward, <laughs> but uh, yeah. really, uh, you know, when you just get dropped beneath the, the outward appearance of things, you notice you're often just trawling through similar conundrums and scenarios. Call it working out karma. You know. Looking at ones again and again, the kind of challenges we get, the joys we have, the interests, the frustrations, the sorrows. You know, working through all this stuff. Working through it means what? You know? Does it mean getting rid of it? Does it mean what does it mean? It means just not getting held by it, not getting stuck in it. All of it is what it is. And yet, uh, you know, the death, birth, death, meeting, parting, happiness, unhappiness, pain, sorrow, joy, pleasure, is these fundamental elements of human, human life, relationships, Separations, you know, forming, bonding, dissolving, always what it is, what we go through, what we always have done, you know, what it is to be a human being, and then not getting stuck in it, so we're not 
desperately hanging on, feeling hung on to, feeling trapped, feeling the pressure build up, the weight of it all. Uh, We can live lightly, so we walk lightly through this planet, this planetary existence. So it's just learning this, trying to find out how we're getting stuck, how we're getting held. Actually, learning it may may sound much too academic, because most of our language concerned with uh, understanding has got an academic, intellectual um, nuances to it. Something to learn, something to know, something to consider. All sounds like it's up in your head. Um, Actually, that's part of it, but a lot of it, there's a lot of body underneath the head. Most of it <laughs> is underneath the head, <laughs> where the feelings and the you know, the feeling senses are, where the instincts, the reflexes, the defences, the reaching out, the holding on, the longing, the rising up, the joyfulness, the opening, the closing, the retracting, you know, all that. Feel it in your nervous system. All of our body, mind is one interconnected nervous system that's kind of lighting up, flashing, reflexing, purring, orbiting, checking things out. Mm. It's certainly not a head process, though your head, you can track it when you get more skillful at it. You can begin to name it. Which is something, you know. But not much. Naming a tsunami as a tsunami really doesn't keep you dry. <laughs> doesn't make it go down. <laughs> it's a nice word though. <laughs> so when you, when you often when we meditate, we're cultivating this skill of developing mindfulness in the body for a very good reason. Not because we don't just take the body just as a physical system like flesh and blood, but the body is a nervous system, as an intelligence experience. It's what mindfulness of the body is about. And the Buddha saying, you know, of all, all states that are conducive to wisdom, meet, join, and merge in mindfulness of the body. They do not, people do not touch the deathless unless they develop mindfulness of the body. These are pretty clear statements, aren't they? So we're saying mindfulness of the body, what does it mean? Like, you know, liver, fingernails, toes? No, not really, but this wired intelligence that we have in our bodies that feel a sense of alarm, a sense of not being welcome, a sense of happiness, joy when we see other, other beings. Mm-hmm. sense of grief we feel collapsed sense of overwhelm we feel pressured and tense and tight that's body it's there and it's that that can be is effect, profoundly affected emotionally so the body and the emotions 
are not really separate. They're the two aspects of the same thing. <clears throat> it's always good to recognize this because sometimes we try to deal with uh, feelings of frustration or anger or trying to, trying to figure it out, who's right and who's wrong. What it says in the book is this, you, you're right and you're wrong. This doesn't, if you've done that, you probably realize it doesn't actually um, get the results that you expected. Just telling someone you're right and they're wrong, they don't go, oh, oh, wonderful, thank you. That's all made clear for me now. <laughs> they generally resist it. <laughs> yeah. Because what we... What we do with that, when we say such a thing, is we say, on a bodily level, I'm separate from you. Off. Get in your place. That's what you do. That's what you do in an embodied way when we do that. We can say, oh, you know, what we can say is that that particular behavior didn't work for me or whatever, you know. Because they they still get a sense of... um, you're connected to real reflexes and real experiences, not judgments about them. We go into the judgmental place in ourselves, our heads. It's disconnected. It's abstract. Mm-hmm. So right and wrong are, of course, very useful labels if they're used wisely. It helps us to calibrate. Our moral sense. So he starts to think, oh, that's right. You remember. Hey, that causes offense. Right. Not good. But you always use it sort of like you as a, something that labels an action, an action rather than replaces it. The danger of uh, these things is that the abstract right, wrong can easily get politicized. Yeah, so killing killing bad people is right. Getting rid of bad people is right. And then, you know, racial things, ethnic things, national things. This is what we do, isn't it? Humans do this. So an enemy of the state is wrong. So with that, you can see how that can very easily be manipulated. And of course, a lot of these massive wars are about just that, the politicization of right and wrong. And then what do we do? Those situations send people out there who kill people they don't know, they've got no particular problem with. Very disconnected, you know, you could say it's inhuman, except it's incredibly common among human beings. We kind of go into this. He's the other. And the kind of massacres, remember that terrible massacre in Vietnam, the My Lai massacre, when they just so crazy with all the killing. These soldiers shot up an entire village, including women, children, Buffaloes, chickens, anything. Just shot it all. So 
so crazed into the you know, complete loss of empathy with other beings, connection with other beings. So, you know, mindfulness of the body isn't just knowing you're holding a rifle in your hands. It means knowing the feeling of fear, knowing the feeling of threat, knowing what that feels like. And as a, as a Dhamma practice, the theme is that through knowing that, we can come to terms with that, we can begin to discharge. It's not just about knowing it as a label, but comprehending it, being fully aware of it, so we can feel that. And then we can start, so as you begin to get in touch with that, you can start to soft, widen, soften, release, relax those, those reflexes. Breathing in and out, you could say. Softening, soothing, relaxing those reflexes. Contemplating those reflexes. Hey, why did I feel threatened there? What was that about? What actually happened? Mm-hmm. We attach to a view, an opinion, something or the other, and you feel threatened when it's taken away. Oh, what's happening? Um, so we start to see where our real attachments are because we feel them in our embodied sense. You feel the sense of loss, you know, pressure, fear in the embodied sense, embodied way. It's because we're, there's an attachment there. So it helps us to track these things, which we have to know in order to release them. So... So often, as you, many of you practice meditation, you realize every day it's practice meditation every day. You come into that sitting still, contemplating, quieting down, and you can start to feel, you know, the thoughts, the emotions, the things we've got to do, the worries, the concerns, the seeming obstacles to meditation, to what we would wish to have a kind of clear and tranquil place. Actually, these are the knots, the locks that we have to undo. You undo them on through this transferring them into bodily experiences. You can feel the pressure of it. So generally, my my ones tend to be to to dos, to do lists. So because of the number of areas that I plugged into, there's always four or five different to-dos running at any particular time. So when I sit and meditate, it's often that just that feeling of this, all this stuff rushing through the system. You know, another one coming up. Another one, oh, forgot that. Oh, another one, do that. Okay, you know, so I can either, you know, react to all that. I can't stand this, I'm getting out of here. Or this isn't right, this isn't proper, somebody else is not poor me, why I'd have to do so much or, or I shouldn't do this or that, you know, whatever those kind of stories and tribunals that we can go through you probably have your own rights and wrongs fair and not fair tribunals but, you know, you realise you don't want to actually live in a courtroom for the rest of your life. 
deciding about who's right and wrong, what I did right and wrong, who was his fault, her fault, my fault, their fault, God's fault, somebody's fault, my father, my mother, society, people, whatever, you know, God. <laughs> you know, and then the verdicts, basket case, not going to make it, nowhere near Nibbana, you know, whatever, give it all up. So you really won't wind yourself up into a miserable mess in the courtroom. But in the body is where it ends. So I know if I'm just kind of drop the topics, just feel the energy of that pushing, the pressure, the sense of overwhelm, and feel the charge, the kind of nervous tingling of all that. And, you know, some of just feeling it already starts to kindle this quality of empathy. You know, it's not it's not a sentiment. It's just a sense of feeling it, being with the feeling in the feeling, being with the body in the body. So you're not separate from it. And actually for me there's a great wish to be separate from it. I do like do not like suffering one little bit. In all these years I've been in the suffering business and I still don't like it. <laughs> so that's the bit, you know, dukkha has to be understood, has to be met. We don't understand it by just deciding it, defining it, blaming it. We understand it by standing under it, you know, feeling it in the body, the push of it. I don't know what it is for you, but probably I imagine for many people these days, you, could, you, know, you bring it down to one, one word, it's overwhelmed, too much. You know, I think that's a pretty common one, too much. Too much going on, too much. We're very highly sophisticated, civilized beings, which means we've got all kinds of programs and agendas running. Too much. Could perhaps be not enough. You know, feeling lonely, feeling on your own, feeling left out. Could be one of those. Doesn't whatever it is. That's when you can get it down to one word. You know, just one word, and then that—that's the—that's—that's the process of your thinking mind, just to get it down to one word that fits. When it fits, you know it fits because you can feel it. Ah, something stops, it settles. You got it. You're coming out of the courtroom, out of the details. You come into the basic ground of dukkha. It's that. Then, ah, how does that feel? And it's being gripped by something. That's attachment. Attachment's not some, you know, conscious choice. It's a grip. Held. And you are within that. So with that, we have to, how do we loosen the grip? You break it, or, or is it just a matter of loosening, softening, widening, coming out of that? You know, feeling your wholeness, feeling completed, practicing kindness, patience towards though that that particular in that particular experience. So you come out of the emotional frozen state. Often the overwhelmed or the when we're in that grip of attachment, we're emotionally locked. 
whatever attachment you're emotionally locked in it so it could be rage it could be grief it could be depression it could be resentment it could be you know just something much smaller than it's a niggle I don't know you know but it's like the thing is locked and you're stuck stuck doing this thing often silly embarrassing socially unacceptable you know person on a personality level ugly childish you know, whatever you want to name it it still just sits there and pokes its you know pokes its tongue out at you doing its thing so that's the one we have to take hold of okay breathing in breathing out being with that not changing it not fixing it breathing in breathing out being with that Feeling in the body softening, widening, relaxing. When it releases, then you understand it. Say, so, oh, I was still believing that I was in control of something. That's what it was. A stupid idea. <laughs> you know? So, it's humbling. As these things clear, then this is what uh, the path to samadhi, jhana, is in the body. The Buddha discovered this process in the body. And these are the obstacles, the locks that we have to get through in order to deepen into that state of unity where the mind gets really rested and satisfied. This is is standard Buddhist cultivation. This is the time, you know, the new year, also the time when energy is quite low. In the old calendars, this was the old Celtic calendars, this, was, this time was the space between the years. They had the 12 days when, uh, you know, one set of one year finished, the next one hadn't begun, you got this kind of interim. A very dodgy period. Everything's dead. Everything's dying. If it isn't dead already, it's dying. The low point, the nadir. Like the Yule lock, deck the halls with boughs of holly. You know, brighten up, put something out there. Warm it up. We've got to get through this. This is the time when people, season where people die, isn't it? More often. Big flu thing going around now. Killing people, you know a lot less than it would have done 150 years ago. But that's there. This is the dying time. It's very important to just kind of, you know, adapt to that because you, whatever, wherever we are in our heads in terms of 2010, 2011, you know, internet and jet planes and things like that, the bodies still respond to these fundamental signals energy dropping, less energy in nature, quiet, lack of light, darkness, cold, everything starts to go down. You know, this is a great time for retreat. You know, hibernate, curl up in a ball. 
perfect time for retreat. Mm. But in that, it's also a time to, you know, dig through one's own house, inner house, what's happening. It's not a time to be doing new things. It's a time to be turning things over, feeling out what was good, what was clear, what's dark. Forgiveness. Today, tonight, is a, is a time to trawl through, pick out something there in the shadows, the grudge, the unresolved, decide, hmm, can, I let, can that be let go of? Can I widen? Can I acknowledge that and say, enough? Just release that. Time for that. Very powerful thing that human beings do. And it's embodied. Hmm. not an apology it's not a tribunal it's a sense of releasing there's no right and wrong it's just suffering and non-suffering I was struck when I was uh, in South Africa recently as somebody gave me a book to read which I short book it was written by a um, female a lady one black lady um, psychologist. Mm, I think her name was mm, Pumla. Pumla Gobodo Midikizela, I think that was it. And she was a trained psychologist and she was very interested in, in this um, trying to understand the mind or the mindsets behind the apartheid and particularly the the killing and there was a a renowned um, assassin who was in jail I think it's called Eugene de Kock who is, you may remember, may not they dubbed him prime, prime evil he'd kill, he was the head, he was a colonel head of a commando unit that used to shoot and bomb um, insurgents, ANC activists. They killed many people. And uh, he was in jail. For so she felt, oh, you know, I need to see this person. So um, she went through the proper authorities and she said, I want, to int- I want to try and understand not, you know, what happens to a person. Since we all have innately as human beings, we have an innate ethical sense. All of us, you know. We do have a, some sense of right and wrong. What, what we decide is right and wrong may differ, but all, those terms are meaningful for all of us. Yeah. We all uh, will tend to look after our own our children, our parents, our family will tend to look after them, our friends will have that and we'll have our enemies as well but we have some sense of you know, ethical you know. so how come? What, what, what is it that, that makes a person able to shoot bomb people, you know, go to work 
And he, his children, he had, his wife had a wife and children, he thought he was a businessman, you know, just going off to work, come back in the evening, you know, hard day's work. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, the, the sense of the compartmentalizing that can occur when we politicize right and wrong. Compartmentalize, because you cut off, you have to cut off from something more empathic. And giving credit, this be here had uh, publicly, you know, acknowledged and made an open confession to all the things he'd done. Mm. So, but he was in jail, so she wanted to go and see him. So she went, and she was very frightened at first, you know. Or you meet somebody who's killed dozens, maybe a hundred people. What's this guy going to be like? You know, dripping fangs, you know, killing black people. She's a black person. So she goes to see him and he's, um, they, they set it up. And he's um, in a room and he's shackled, he's chained to a chair which is bolted to the floor. And as she comes in, he gets up, you know, and politely offers her a seat, you know, please sit down and, you know, very proper behavior. And so she's trying to, talking to him, you know, what, what, what happened? How did it go, you know? What's going on? And at one point in this, this, interview she said he just started to remember actually not just remember from his head but remember deeply what he'd done his body started to shake his whole body started to shake and tremble with the remorse and she said she was watching she just saw his, his whole body shaking and her ha- instinctively her hand went out she just Put her hand on his on his hand to just calm, soothe him. He said, "That's my trigger hand. That's the hand that does the killing." And she put her hand on it. And she says she didn't know what she was doing. It's that instinct, just. Uh, you know. Yeah, so it's an image, that re- you know, very clear image. You know, black female on this guy's hand, shaking that moment where there's an empathic connection which is bigger than right and wrong. This guy has wrong. (laughs) You know, he's done wrong. At that moment, she's not right and wrong. She's just recognizing grief, pain, massive, you know, remorse. And the body moves. And the body reaches out. Something in the body reaches out to touch that which is in that state, whoever. Mm-hmm. So it's to me that's a you know a powerful image of what embodied intelligence does, and what perhaps only that can do. There's no you know you say something, okay, you did wrong, you got 212 years in jail, fine, you know whatever. It doesn't do anything, you know. Feeling guilty just freezes stuff in your mind. Explaining it, justifying it, 
You know, I was told to do this, doing my job, so forth. Yeah, okay, that's true. It's all true. It's all true. The enemies of the state, yeah, that's true. It's all true. But we're looking at something that's a bit bigger than just true in that sense. We're looking at what is really sacred. You know, what's bigger than that? What's bigger than just being right? What is sacred is forgiveness, isn't it? And it's not just a matter of um, condoning, apologizing, but something you actually resonates. Empathy. And interesting enough, the the Buddha's word for empathy is something like an anukampang, anukampati. Anukampati is the verb, and it comes two two parts. Anu together, or along with, or in the presence of, and company means to, to tremble or to shake. You could say to resonate. So we shake or something trembles, something flickers, something shifts in the presence of. And this was the quality that the Buddha experienced, the, the emotion or the, the whatever you want to call it, that the Buddha experienced that caused him to teach. That sense of, hey, there's beings out there. As you might know if you took the time to look into the, the chanting book, the, the piece that the um, person who requests the Dhamma talk says, uh, is this anukampang, is the word in there. And it says, uh, it means uh, the Brahma god Sahampati um, requests the Buddha um, please teach the Dhamma for those who have a little dust in their eyes out of anukampa, out of empathy, out of a sense of not just, uh, oh, do it in a bad way there, you could do it with a bit of help, but actually something, it's the same as me, you know, it's the same. It's another body, it's another embodied being who knows pain, confusion, Joy, happiness, desire, craving, fear, love, you know, who knows all that? They feel that. I feel that. They feel that. Hey, you know, there's a connection and it shivers. And I think the Buddha was walking around shaking, physically shaking. But, you know, the sense of the heart having that picking up. And if you look in the life of the Buddha, uh, he never missed a beat on that one. Right through his last moments of his life, lying under the tree, dying, that sense of, is there anyone who could use a teaching now? You know, still, as long as that Buddha heart's there, it's still orbiting with a sense of, out of compassion, out of empathy with other beings. Don't, please, if you're bashful, get somebody else to ask a question. Don't miss the opportunity. You know, I won't be around much longer. Whoever you are, hmm? lepers, kings, merchants, matriarchs, whoever, out of compassion. Compassion is the word they translate it as, but there are two, karuna, compassion, sympathy sometimes. But it's nice to just remember the, the, that, the structure of that word. It's not a nice idea. It's something fuller, deeper, richer than that.
And sometimes it's a matter also, you know, being in empathy with ourselves. We even lose that. We sort of politicize ourselves. Somehow our heads can separate from the rest of us and go, well, right, wrong, right, wrong, good, bad, you know. It chatters a lot, doesn't it? You know? And something in us says, oh, she shut up. Chattering. But it's chattering because uh, you left it behind, <laughs> or it's left you behind. <laughs> it's like uh, a friend of mine used to call it um, howling dog practice. <laughs> howling dog practice, she used to call it. This is like you're living in a house and you hear this dog howling in the basement. Oh, dog's howling in the basement. So you move up to the first floor to get away from it. Dog howls a bit louder. You can still hear this dog howling. Let's move on to the second floor and get away from this sound of this howling dog. Dog howls a bit louder. You can still hear it through the floorboards. Move on to the third floor. I can still hear that thing howling at night. It's going even wilder. So you go onto the roof and you can still hear this dog howling. <laughs> And eventually you think, okay, you've got to go down to the third floor, down to the second floor, down to the ground floor. Open the door of the basement and go and hug the dog. (laughs) (laughs) It's important to have time to, to do that. That's, uh, oh, you know, you can run that through your mind perhaps, it's up to you, but way of, another way of framing meditation is the time to hug the howling dog. <laughs> yeah. Let's meet, meet that. And wonderful things can occur, because it's not just a matter of silencing it. You know, sometimes we can think, well, you know, dukkha, many things, get rid of it, get over it, get past it, then we'll be all right. That sounds good idea, but actually it's much more than that. We don't just get all right, we get bigger. Every time you meet a bit of dukkha on the road and you meet it properly, you don't just get over it, you get bigger. You get bigger and wider and steadier and deeper. That's why it's a noble truth. It ennobles us. Yeah. It ennobles us. We meet it. We become more compassionate, more grounded. The justifiable pettiness, the justifiable selfishness, suddenly seems rather irrelevant. So another um, story that I offer is a is a story of um, Indian Indian doctor, and 
think his brother got murdered for a just for a mobile phone, you know. Somebody shot him just so just to steal his phone. And they were so the family was so horrified at you know, why did you know it's just so so wrong you know so enormously wrong that they decided the only thing they could do to get over that or to clear it was when the murderer was put in jail they decided that they would put up the funds to make sure that his little sister had a proper education. So they decided to sponsor her education. So only an act of forgiveness that was bigger than the crime was something that could actually clear it for them. And that's, um, that's not a tribunal decision, is it? <laughs> tribunal decision is whack the guy in jail, that's the end of the story. We just got rid of the wrong, switched it out of the way. True, right, yeah, okay, fair enough, yeah, that's what you get, yeah, that's legal, that's right, it's just and so forth. It's not any bigger though, is it? Nothing's really got any bigger. <laughs> yeah. So not not that I'm saying that that's you know, inappropriate, but you know, when you look at the, the you know, all that the punishment can do, it can't it can't re-establish anything. You can't re-establish. You know, you can have somebody thrown in jail, think, oh, he got his just desserts, the rotten so-and-so. But still the bitterness is there. Still the resentment's there. Still the, I was wrong. Still the grief is there. Still the shock is there. Yeah. So right and wrong is okay as something to ward off evil to tell us not to do it to tell us what evil is to say don't do that when it's happened right and wrong don't work anymore they they don't they're there as a preventive they can't actually correct anything as anybody who's been in prison work knows throwing people in jail keeps them yeah keeps them out of harm's way I guess it doesn't change anything by itself. What does is when we recognize the something that recognize the horror of humans. We are a pretty horrible lot in many ways. <laughs> and uh, meets it and gets bigger than that. Most of us, I hope, won't have to be put to such a test. Most of it's probably little, small things, you know, disappointments, <coughs> frustrations, you know, complaints about ourselves, our inadequacies, our failures, the minor injustices of our socio-domestic setups, the rotten deal, you know. 
you can see a whole, you know, sophisticated, educated people who know right and wrong. You know, country airports closed down, snow and ice. People going, getting really angry about it. You know, I was at one airport I was at. Poor woman behind the ticketing desk. <laughs> just had, you know, one off people coming up and getting angry with her. It was like, you know, I'm in South Africa. It's not even my country that snowed up. What's it got to do with me? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, you know, that charge that I've been hard done by. It's somebody's fault. You'll do. <laughs> It's not a decision, is it? Yeah. So, fair, you know, you can't even manage that with some sense of, okay, you know, okay, I wanted to go somewhere, I can't go somewhere, okay, that's the way it is, you know. Disappointment. Can we handle that much? Nobody's shot me, nobody's murdered my brother for a mobile phone, you know. You get around being stuck in a traffic jam without going bonkers. And you see how, but in a way it's the same thing, how you meet dukkha. Like taking some kind of personal affront. (laughs) Because there's always a personal quality to it. He said that to me. So then we, we don't get it. You just see the personal specific story that this constant force is manifesting and we get stuck in the story and don't deal with the force the energy the experience want don't get what I want I get angry (laughs) pretty basic isn't it you know I feel hard done by I collapse into despair you know wow and those are, those are not just ideas, they're whole, you feel them in your body. So that's where we have to go, however silly it seems to be. So this is where we can clear it and we start to recognize, you know, what, the, what our personalities can't manage and what our you know, socialized selves can't manage something. We have a bigger resource that can manage it. And gradually we come into that. We work with that. It's like the, the, the life process is bring it on. <laughs> Don't say that too loud. <laughs> a little bit at a time. Yeah. See if I can get bigger than this one. You know, see if not I can get bigger than it, but something in me can meet that and finally do the only thing that can be done. Do the only thing that can be done. Only thing that really can be done, that resolves, that completes, that finishes. Now whatever we, we, however we call that, letting go, whatever it will as long as it stays as an idea, it can be just another another courtroom case. Why didn't you let go? You're not any good at letting go. Letting go is what you should do. You should have let go of that by now. 
<laughs> so, you know, whatever's said is got to come down slowly through the whole form, the whole human, our human form, the whole of humanity. It's humbling, it's deepening, it's ennobling. It's that, you know, the Buddha said, if you couldn't do this, I wouldn't have taught it. But because you can do it, I teach it. There is an end to this. So this is our uh, occasion this evening, just to bring this to mind. And uh, particularly, we'll have a chance later to, you know, consider things that, because it's a new year, we want to put aside, have done with things we like to try and firm up, give ourselves some support with, and then um, as we complete the that session, we can go out into the field and uh, burn it all, let it all go. So I'll offer this for your reflection tonight. And,